Hello, my name is Craig Barton and welcome to the Tips for Teachers podcast, the show that helps you supercharge your teaching one idea at a time. Each episode, I invite a guest from the wonderful world of education to share five tips for teachers to try both inside and outside of the classroom. With each tip, the challenge is always to ask yourself, what would I have to do or change to make this work for me, my situation and my students? Experimentation and frustration may follow, but hopefully something good will come out of it. Now, remember to check out our website, tipsforteachers.co.uk, where you'll find all the podcasts as well as the links, resources and audio transcriptions from each episode. Better still, you'll also find a selection of video tips, some taken directly from the podcast and others recorded by me. These video clips could be used to spark discussion between colleagues, a departmental meeting, a twilight inset and so on. Now, just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word of thanks for our sponsor. So this episode of the Tips for Teachers podcast is proudly supported by Arc Maths. Now, Arc Maths is an innovative app created by teachers to help students remember all those crucial skills needed to succeed at maths. Arc Maths is built around research into the power of retrieval practice and space practice on memory. Here's how it works. Students crack open the Arc Maths app and are given a 12-question quiz with follow-up practice questions on anything they got wrong. Not just straight away, but the next day, three days later, a week later, and so on, until they have it secure in long-term memory. It really is fantastic. Now, the more time students spend on the app, the better Arc will get to know them and what they need. With no teacher input required, you can spend more of your time inspiring your students with new ideas. So check out Arc Maths, and remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. Right, back to the show. So let's get learning with today's guest, the wonderful Joe Morgan. Now, spoiler alert, here are Joe's five tips. Number one, model techniques live. Number two, make sure students know whether they are right or wrong and don't wait until it's too late. Tip three, use calculators with students from the earliest opportunity. Tip four, use visual aids, including props and online tools to bring explanations alive. And tip five, don't forget the respond part of responsive teaching. Now, Joe is, of course, a maths teacher, but many of these tips will transfer no matter what subject you teach. Now, remember, if you look at the episode description on your podcast player or visit the episode page on tipsforteachers.co.uk, you'll see I've timestamped each of these tips so you can jump straight to any one that you want to listen to first or re-listen. I really hope you enjoy this one. Enjoy the show. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Joe Morgan to the Tips for Teachers podcast. Hello, Joe. How are you? Hi, Craig. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Joe, for listeners who don't know, can you tell us about yourself in a sentence? Oh, so I am a maths teacher and a blog at resourceaholic.com, and I do various other things in the maths world. I'm Maths Gem on Twitter. Nice. Long sentence, but I'll give you that one. That's good, that. <laughs> right, let's dive in. What's your first tip for us, Joe? Right, tip number one is um, model techniques live. Oh, okay. Tell me about it. Right, now, this is something that I think all teachers need to model. We know that modelling is part of good teaching, whatever subject. Um, and it's the live bit that I think is really important. And I'll talk about modelling live in a maths context compared to modelling 
not live. Um, but before that, I thought I'd mention other subjects and where modelling comes in. So I'm thinking back to lessons I've observed in other subjects. And I remember once I observed a drama lesson where the teacher kept telling the students what she wanted them to do and at no point showed them what she wanted them to do. And then my feedback to her was that she should get up and, and, and model the sort of technique that she wanted them to show in this drama lesson. And she said um, she was a bit embarrassed to... <laughs> Um, and I, and like that was like that was a, a to me a, a really key part of any teacher's job is modelling, um, and I th- and I really thought about that. I thought it's funny that she's embarrassed about doing the thing that she's an expert at. Um, and then I realised that actually this applies in lots of other subjects because I think that some teachers and I'm not saying it's necessarily the word embarrassment is the right word, but some teachers are a bit anxious in the maths classroom um, and perhaps in lots of other subjects about modelling live. Um, and then, so since then, I've sort of been really looking out for examples of good modelling, and I've seen it in um, PE lessons that I've observed. I've, you know, where you, you could be watch a PE lesson and uh, where they're teaching a technique, and I watched one where the the PE teacher was uh, teaching in cricket techniques, and he was showing the students kind of five um, uh, uh, skills that are used in cricket. Um, and what was really good was he had some students get up to kind of do it while he directed them, while the rest of the class watched. But the teacher also was modelling them as well. So he was telling the students, right, I want you to go over there and then you're going to do this thing. But then also the teacher got involved in, in that modelling because the teacher's the expert. The teacher mm-hmm. really threw the ball really far and really showed like how to do that really well. Um, so I've seen it um, brilliantly um, in PE. And also I've seen live modelling really done well in art um, with a visualiser. But actually, yes. this is what kind of... I guess say this is semi-live modelling. Because what I've seen is... Um, Students in art who are being taught a technique, like a very specific technique to do with, I can't remember what it was, it might have involved some uh, kind of etchings or rubbings or something, I don't know, but it was, it was a really like, specific thing that they, they were being taught. And what the teacher had done was she'd used a visualiser um, in advance, she'd recorded her hands doing the whole technique, um, so she's sort of starting with a blank piece of paper, she'd done the whole thing and showed all the technique really, really clearly, and so you could just see her hands, she'd recorded that, and then she left it on the loop while the students did it. And it nice. was so, so smart. So that meant that the students um, could see exactly what they were meant to do. And they could see an actual person doing it. So not just hear an explanation, but see what to do. And then while they were working, they could just look up and reference the board and say, oh, what does she do next? Oh, yeah, that's what I need to do. And because it was playing on a loop, they could then look again and again. And they could keep checking that they were doing it right and see what the do, teacher did. Do you done. know the practicalities of what she'd used to record it, Joe? Was it just so in my school? Yeah. We've got those visualizers, um, the um, IPVO ones, which have got this, they're kind of on an arm, you know what I mean? They're kind of, yes. you can angle the visualizer. So she had then just um, angled the visualizer um, facing down onto her hands, done the work, and used the camera function on the computer to record it. So it's, it's actually pretty straightforward stuff. And it was, I think they used it a lot during lockdown, um, the art teachers, to record techniques. And now it's part of their daily practice, which is fantastic. So, um, I know a lot of uh, maths teachers use um, visualizers um, in their day-to-day lessons, and I don't use a visualizer. I use, you know, I write directly onto a, an interactive whiteboard. But I did use a visualizer the other day when I was doing constructions, yeah. and when I was doing transformation. So these are two topics which really lend themselves well to visualizers, um, and particularly with transformations. I, I wanted to show students the the rotations with tracing paper thing, and. No matter how good your animation is on a whiteboard or on some slides, that really is better shown with actual tracing paper where you're actually, you know, literally doing exactly what the students would do and they can see your hands doing it. So I think um, 
this kind of live modeling under a visualizer is um it's just such a helpful technique and and particularly in lessons where there's something practical to do um but also um you know we know that for example um editing work in English under a visualizer mm. or, or, or in any subject with a written element sort of showing that kind of live editing is really, really powerful. Um, so I think visualizers are a really good tool for that. But I don't think all live modeling has to be done under a visualizer because the other side of it is the writing on the board live. And so, for example, in maths, that would be solving a maths question while or, or, or going through the workings while the students watch rather than clicking through the, a PowerPoint that's got the steps. And I think it's a huge difference in those two things. So my slides, and um, I, you know, I'll use a slide where there's just a question at the top and then it's a blank slide. So I've thought in advance about what example I want to model. Mm. The slide will just have the, uh, the question and then I've got a blank slide where I will go through the workings and write it all up and it should look exactly how it should look in their books. And this again was where a visualizer really helps because you could actually have an exercise book. But I think it's so important that they see me do that rather than click, click, click through the next stage. I don't think that's as powerful. What do you think, Craig? Yeah, a couple of things to say about that. Um, so the first is on that one, on the not clicking through, um, yeah. I see this a lot. You, um, you see this whenever, because there's so many good resources. We're, we're, obviously, we're, we're, we're mathematicians, so we, we, we speak about maths. There's so many good pre-prepared maths resources, whether it's White Rose or whatever, where it's all fully worked out for you, all the, all the examples, mm -hmm. all the working out. And if you download something off Tez, um, often the authors put so much time in and done all the working out for you because they want to communicate, uh, you know, how they're thinking and so on. There's almost too much on the slide. And I watch a lot of lessons these days where exactly the, the teacher clicks, clicks, clicks. And there's a couple of problems with that. One is if the ch if the child's thinking of a slightly different method or even if they suggest a different method and it's not exactly the same one that's written on the slide, mm -hmm. the teacher almost ends up saying, oh, you're absolutely right, but we're just going to do it slightly different here. And yeah. the kid's like, well, what's going on here? Um, I like the mantra, I'm going to get this tattooed on myself, do the maths, don't reveal the maths. I think that's really nice. Absolutely, that's, this, yeah, this that's, re that's a good Revealing method, the maths is, 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 is the problem. The other thing I want to say about that um, is, and this ties into the visualizer thing. I remember, I don't know if you were the same, Joe. When I first started teaching, I was PowerPoint obsessed to, in the sense that I wanted everything on my slide. So when you said those transformations, I used to spend hours getting the animation of the rotating tracing paper around and so on, thinking that that's, that was the proper way to do it because it looked nice on the thing. But you're absolutely right. Like it's, you want to replicate as much as you can what the kids are doing so that they can follow you doing it and, and so on and so forth. Um, and I was just thinking back to what you said about the art teacher. This I really love this idea of recording what's done on the visualizer and playing it back on the loop. And I guess you can certainly do that before the lesson, which is really nice to do because it shows you've had a go at the example yourself and so on. But you could, if you were te more technical than we are, um, well, certainly you are, Joe. No offense. But what you could definitely, you definitely do, is you could record it as you're doing it live in the class, right? And I'm sure then, with a bit of button pressing, you could then get that up on the screen, going, you know, going on that loop, so the kids could could refer to yeah, it. Yeah, you And even then, yeah. even then, get a bit fancier, upload it to VLE or Google Classroom or whatever, and then the kids could access that whenever whenever they want to. I, I think yeah, that's, that's and really, and really nice. and for people that aren't um, kind of uh, confident enough with the tech to kind of record live and then immediately get it on the screen. There are ways you can use things uh, alongside each other. Like you could have, I'm going to model it live under the visualizer. And then while you're doing it, I've got like a, a GIF 
because you can just Google these things, you know. I've got a GIF running on the screen where it's just, you know, which might not necessarily be my hands doing it, but yes. it's just, you know, showing it. So while they're practicing, they can see it. But I just, yeah, I do think, like, that's, um, you're right about the kind of, uh, we shouldn't just reveal step by step. Sometimes what I do, like, I download, I normally write my own stuff, but sometimes I will download someone else's slides um, and then I want to use their examples and I just delete all the answer bit. So I've now yeah, got my blank, yeah, blank yeah. slide. I've got the question at the top that I want to show, but I'm, I delete all the animated examples because I, I, yeah, I just don't think it's, um, and I know it's a really, really common practice to click through slides um, with the, the answers, but it's just not as powerful of, as a teacher doing it themselves. And I think there is um, sometimes um, a lot of anxiety. I remember when I first started teaching A-level and I'd have worked out the questions in advance I had them on a bit of paper in the room and yeah, me too. it was and I used to like I, I've been modeling on the board and I knew how to do it but I'd still occasionally look at these paper and I always thought that the students were judging me when I did that and they were thinking she yeah. doesn't know what to do next she's having to check her notes <laughs> so I very quickly stopped doing that um because I thought I don't want them to think that I need that but for a while I you know I just lacked that confidence I thought well what if I mess this up in front of them but now I'm at the stage and you know what it's like when you get more experience you kind of get that confidence where it's like if I mess it up in front of them that's actually sometimes quite a good thing isn't it because yeah. they can say oh if they're paying attention it's a really good way of checking they're paying attention they can say miss actually you've made a mistake there um and then you can go back and fix it and say yeah everyone makes mistakes and well done for spotting that and um hopefully you can all see why i went wrong there and i'm going to fix it so you just need to sort of get to the point where you're comfortable with the fact that you will occasionally make a mistake on the board um but the live modeling is is a really powerful thing for students yeah, it's really good. Just a couple more things on that. Um, yeah, I was exactly the same. When I first started, particularly further maths A-level, yeah. I didn't have a bloody clue what I was doing. And that's when, if there was pre-prepared slides, I was using those left, right and centre because I had much more confidence the fact that I could then show a line and then explain the line. But it was nowhere near as powerful mm -hmm. as me actually kind of kind of hand doing it. Um, and, and the other thing, Joe, is are you... As when you're doing your live modeling, are you doing some kind of explaining your thinking as well? I, I always think that's important. What, what, what kind of things are you doing there? I guess, so sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll stop between each line and ask for their ideas. And there's sort of pros and cons of that, isn't there? So sometimes I'll say, right, this one I'm going to just, I'm going to model and you're going to watch and you're going to try and follow my thinking. And then, yeah, at each stage. So I won't necessarily be... Um, I could suppose if you think about something like your techniques of silent teaching stuff, I might just be writing down each step. Yeah. Whereas then there are, there's, you know, because we can use all these things, you know, you don't have to just show one technique. Exactly. So another way you might do it is narrating each line. So now I'm going to subtract two X from each side, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so there's that. And then, and then there's the sort of technique of, um, any ideas what I should do next? And then someone might suggest something. You say, right, so now I'm going to subtract two X from each side. So, yeah, there's a kind of combination of stuff. And I don't think I stick exclusively to one style of modelling. And in one lesson, I might have four examples and I might do, I might use those, like all those different techniques in my four different examples. There might be one where I take a bit more input from the class and one where I narrate each step and one where I'm just writing it down. Um, yeah, so, but I think, um, yeah, the... Uh, I think the thing, what you said about the different methods is really interesting because actually on the few occasions where I have clicked through slides, sometimes I'll say, oh, they've done it differently to how I do it. And, yeah. and they're just confusing <laughs> people then. So, um, yeah. you know, and then actually, um, and, and yeah, it's nice to, or sometimes I'll say, right, is it, how would, how, any ideas on how we do this question? Someone might suggest something. And I'll think, oh, that's exactly. different to how I was going to do it. So I draw a line down the middle of the board and I say, right, so yeah, this is one yeah. method and I'll, and I'll write that one up. And I say, anyone got another method? 
No, okay, so let me show you how I was thinking of doing it, and I'll put it side by side, and I'll say, look, here's two different ways, and I don't mind which way you do it, but so you can see two different perspectives. Um, and all that stuff you lose if you just got a, um, a load of uh, pre-filled text in a PowerPoint that you're clicking through. I'll, I'll end on this with this tip. I was in a school the other day, I won't say where, and I was watching a very experienced uh, teacher, and they were using some pre-prepared slides from a well-known uh, resource provider. And they, you could tell they hadn't looked at them beforehand because they were genuinely surprised when the methods were coming up on the board. They were like clicking through and like, oh, right, okay. And then they were trying to explain. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. There we go. Right, Joe. tip number two, please. Okay, tip number two. Uh, make sure students know whether they're right or wrong and don't wait until it's too late. Oh, I like it. Go on, tell me more. Okay, so um, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference maths, but I think this probably um, applies in, in all subjects, most subjects. Um, it's this idea of having students do an entire chunk of practice or exercise, and they're getting it all wrong, and they don't know till the end, and then it's just kind of a waste of time. So, um, you know, there are various different ways that you can kind of deal with this. And when I, in my first job in teaching, I used to work at a girls' grammar school, where very much me and all my colleagues had this this technique of just putting the answers up for an exercise at the beginning you know so so you could hand out your exercise and you'd have all the answers on the board wow. and the students would just work it out check oh yeah got that one right yeah. um, and I, and that sort of works quite well a level as well and then i moved to another school where immediately um i found that the students would um just copy down the answers from the board yeah. so i had to i had to think more cleverly about how to make sure that students were able to know immediately whether they had the understanding to carry on with the exercise. So what I tend to do now is I'll put a task up on the board um, and I'll give them, say, a minute or so to get that first question going. And it depends on the topic and how long each question takes. But say I'll give them a minute to get started mm. and I might have a little circulate round to make sure everyone's on task. Yep. And then what I'd normally do is I'll then return to the board, um, like my whiteboard. So I might have the task up on the screen and I'll go and I'll go back to the whiteboard and I might do the first question on the board. Um, and so, again, that's me doing it live. They should be getting on with their work at that stage, but some of them might be stuck and they might watch me do it. Mm -hmm. and, and then I'll work all that out and then I'll have an answer at the end. And then I'll say to them, and I don't like to interrupt them much while they're working. So I think it's really important for teachers to not constantly talk over students when they're doing exercise. But I will say, right, everyone, the first answer is on the board. Can you make sure you've got that one right before you carry on with the rest of exercise? Some of them might already be on question three by that stage. Um, yeah. And if you've got it wrong, put up your hand, I'll come and help you. Um, and so there's a few things there. First of all, I've got that whole thing modelled on the board. So what it might be is that they look at it and they think, oh, actually, I can see what she's done and I can see why I've got the different answer. Yeah. And they might immediately be able to self-correct and then go on, move on, get the next one right. Or they might look and say, oh, my answer's totally wrong and I have no idea why. And then they put their hand up and I go and help them. But the pop if you don't do this kind of thing, if you're not providing them with one or two early answers, then it could be that they get the first one wrong, the second one wrong, and the third one wrong, and they do the whole lot wrong, and then you've lost your opportunity to, to do the what your job is, which is to go around and help them improve. So they're not going to make any progress. So um, so I think it's just, you know, there are various techniques. You, you can provide the answers up front. Oh, another technique is um, you quite often get worksheets um, where they have the answers jumbled up at the bottom or something. So students can, you know, they know if they're getting an answer that's not at the bottom, then they know that something's wrong oh, and again they can so it doesn't help. say like question three the answer's this it's just as a no, selection so, of answers. No, so for example MathsPad yeah. have quite a lot of resources where they've got a whole load of questions and then sort of they'll have a big chunk of answers all jumbled okay. up and I say to the students um, it's not a match-up activity really it's an activity where they're working out the answer and then 
just check that your answer's at the bottom. If it is, you can cross it off. And if it's not down there, you've done something wrong. So that's just another way of um, kind of making, letting them check as they go. Um, But it's just so important, isn't it, that, um, um, that that you give them the opportunity to know early on whether they're on the right track because otherwise you're just wasting sort of uh, exercise of 10-15 minutes where they're getting them all wrong. I mean, just imagine they get them all wrong and at the end you put the answers up and you say, right, we're going to purple pen our answers. Everyone mark your answers. And then someone mark cross, 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 cross. You say, right, what's next? And it's like, what a waste of time. So um, I just think it's really important to find a way of providing answers early on, which will depend on your class, how the way you do it, um, to make sure that they then get the help they need at the right time. I completely agree, Joe. So three three things on this. Um, again, if I go back earlier on in my career, I thought the key thing was that the kids didn't copy. That, that was kind of the top thing in my head. So I would always do what you described, I'll leave the answers till the end. And it's only when you kind of gain in experience that you realize, no, the most important thing here is that the kids are practicing the right thing and developing that right fluency. And there is that trade-off of sure, some kids might try and take advantage of it and just wait till you've done it on the board and so on and so forth. But you're gonna get far more benefit from the kids who are taking it seriously and, and practicing practicing correctly because they've got access to the answers. And my second mantra of our conversation, I like the uh, the practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. I think that's a really, really good one to, to bear in mind because it's whatever the kids are practicing, that's what they're going to remember. We want to make sure that's, that's the right thing. Um, final thing, Joe, just on a practical sense, I love your idea that the kids kind of crack on with their work and then after a minute or so you bang up the answer and the method of, of question one to the board and they can check. Do you, would you then, if it's let's say a 10 question exercise, would you then like do the same for kind of question three or question five a bit later on? How, how do you manage that um, as, as the exercise progresses? So I think that yeah, it really depends on how they're getting on. So obviously I, I think circulating around the room is just such a vital part of, of teaching and that's why during COVID we really struggled with our teaching because we couldn't get around the room but I think if I'm circulating around the room and I can just see there's like a really high level of success with the with the task and they all kind of know what they're doing then I might just actually wait till the end put all the answers up at the end but then what I always do when I put the answers up is I, I say something like um so here are the answers but I'm not 100% sure they're all right because you know quite often nice. you get mistakes especially if you've downloaded a resource so what I want you all to do is if your answer doesn't match one on the board just challenge it just say to me what you've got and then I'll and actually it's a really nice technique because you'll get some someone who's like they'll put up a hand and say I got a different answer for question five and I'm pretty sure mine's right and I'll say right so I'm going to do question five on the board now and then often there'll be other people who have got that one wrong as well so even if I'm pretty sure the answers are all right I'll often say to them if you've got one that differs to mine put your hand up and we'll go through that one so I'm not having to go through every single question but I am going through one or two at the end so I will do that in in an activity if when I'm circulating I can see a high level of success if I'm circulating and I'm seeing that there's students that are generally finding some of them well say half the class are doing well and half the class are making a bit of a mess of it then I might say I'm actually going to put up the, the first five answers halfway through and if you're getting them all wrong I'll come to you directly or I might gather a little group together or something um but yeah so that really depends on how they're getting on I think perfect love it right Joe. tip number three please Right, this is very much a maths tip. Okay, so this is use calculators from the earliest opportunity. So day one of year seven, get your students using calculators. And I'll tell you what, let's broaden this out a bit, right? Because science will be loving this as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, A bit of geography, they've not ruled it out. Yeah, and it's interesting in science because um, it's, you know, I feel like the maths department takes 
responsibility for calculators in the school. We're the ones who make sure, in my school, perhaps not in all, we're the ones who make sure that every student has a calculator um, and, there are, and, that, and there's very different ways of doing that depending on what kind of context your school's in. Um, but we, we make sure everyone has a calculator. Um, we make sure they bring it every day. And then science kind of piggyback off that, don't they? Because they're using them quite a lot. Um, but, you know, we really, um, we really have to ensure that calculator usage becomes really fluent. Because what you end up with, and I think we've all seen it, if you've, if you've got some experience in uh, teaching maths, you'd have seen that quite sometimes they get to their GCSE exam and they've got two calculator papers, one non-calculator. So we have majority calculator work going on. And they'll have a question like, find, uh, oh, increase 210 pounds by 35% or something. And you'll see them do like a build-up method for finding yeah. that 35%. And they've got a calculator in front of them. And they could do it in a second because they know how to use a multiplier and they've got a calculator. But they're, they're not reaching for their calculator because they're not, it's not, they haven't got the habit of doing that in yes. schools where it's not been built up as a habit since year seven. And actually, it's something I really, I really work hard on. So in my school, every student is constantly using their calculator and occasionally we'll have a lesson where I'll say, look, we're doing fractions today, the calculator's away because this will normally be on the non-calculator paper and I need you to know how to do this without a calculator. So I won't say calculator away, I'll just say you're not using your calculator today. But other than that, like 95% of lessons, they've got the calculator on the desk and they're just using it fluently. They're picking it up to check things. They're picking it up when they need it. Um, and it's and it's just, um, it's. I just think it's my students, I'm hoping, when they get to their year 11 exams, will not forget they can use their calculator because they're so used to using it. Um, and obviously, there are, they don't use it at primary school anymore. That changed on the on the national curriculum. So now, um, calculators come in in year seven. It's massively engaging to get them using them. They love using calculators, um, and I get that there are really good reasons why schools can't do or think they can't do it. You know, there are um, you've got uh, people, lots of people, premium students, and you're saying that they you know they they can't afford calculators. In which case. There's, you know, the head of maths needs to be going to SRT and saying, I need a big chunk of that people premium budget that has been assigned to those students exactly for this sort of thing. So I can buy a calculator, a set of calculators for every class and they can use them in the lessons, if not at home. I think it's really important that, that we are, heads of maths are making sure that that people premium budget is being used appropriately. And buying calculators is a brilliant use of that budget. Um, and then there'll be some schools where it's not so much they can't afford them, but the behaviour is not good enough or just, there isn't a system in place to make sure they bring them. And in which case, you just need to tackle these problems rather than ignore them. Like you just need to find a way of making sure um, that every student has a calculator in every lesson. Love it, Joe. I have five things to say about this wow, before five. I hand back over to you. <laughs> yeah, just been <laughs> scribbling them down. So the first is... Um, I don't know if you find this, I find it's the lowest achieving students who are the worst at using their calculator and they're the ones who need it most. So to use your example there of, of finding 35% of 200, you'll get a student who mentally that's going to be a real challenge for, for them to do kind of on paper and stuff. But they're the ones who'll do it on paper, whereas they're the ones who benefit most from using their calculator. And it always does matter when you mark a non-calculator like foundation paper, the sorry, a calculator foundation paper, the amount of mental methods that have been used, yeah. written methods that have been used, it's, it's just mind Yeah, I mean, sometimes you'll see in a calculator paper, they've done like long multiplication or long or yeah, division at the crazy. side and got it wrong. Crazy. And you think, why are you doing that? And I'll, you know, oh. I get, you know, I'm like... I'm rude. <laughs> Use a calculator, like big yeah, capitals yeah, when I mark yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, and it's like there, there's um, people. I think some people are a little bit precious about 
well no if they use a calculator too much they're not going to get they're not going to practice their arithmetic yeah, but there's plenty yeah. of opportunities for them to practice arithmetic and they and they do a lot of arithmetic practice at primary school um and there's been some research recently that does show that using calculators at secondary school um um, can really assist um, the, the, the broad range of math skills. So it's not hindering them in any way. You know, I think there's a um, there's a little bit of a... It's almost like people think that students can't become over-reliant on calculators because then they'll stop mm. using their brain. But absolutely not. Like, the calculator helps them to... Oh, no, it doesn't help them. It... Um, it, it opens up a whole new load of maths to them. So they get yeah, to actually do the yeah, important yeah. maths and not be bogged down in all this arithmetic that's, you know, we, we want, it gets them to focus on the right things if they've got a calculator to hand. That's good, right? So that's point one. Uh, point two, again, just a very quick one. Obviously, it's important the kids use the same calculator, right? We've all, we've all seen this. Kids coming in with bizarre models of calculator that they've, their grannies lent them or whatever. Yeah. And then... The one they get given in the exam if they don't have it is just a completely different model and they don't have a clue how to do it. That's that's obviously, uh, it goes without saying. But this, this is one, you've changed my my opinion on this, Joe. Um, I know you're calculator obsessed and as a result, I'm a bit calculator obsessed now. So to use, I think your fractions example is a, re a really interesting one. So in the past, I would never, like for the whole fractions unit, the kids would have never gone anywhere near their calculators because I think, well, the, the whole point of fractions is you've got to be able to do it using writ written methods and so on. But now, even in something like addition of fractions, mm -hmm. they would always use the calculator to check yeah, their idea. answers. Yeah. And, and this goes back to what, we, well, there's two things here. One, it gets them fluent on their calculator. Yeah. But two, it goes back to what we were saying earlier on about yeah. having the answers available, yeah. right? Because, again, they then have a bespoke answer at the point they're ready. They can check on their calculator. So, yeah, I can't see an occasion where I wouldn't want a child having a calculator in their lesson. As long as I can yeah. trust them, yeah. you know, and they the messaging's right, that obviously you're not going to always be able to use this in the exam, but let's get really fluent with this calculator, and it's your own private check, it's your own private set of answers. Yeah then I can only yeah. see benefits. I agree. That. And it's interesting because I had some year 10s recently. We were doing some work on CERDs and there was a, it was a question where that required a lot of manipulation of CERDs. And I did see some of them using the calculator to simplify the CERDs. And I, I said to them, like, I can, it's good that you know how to do that on your calculator, but obviously this whole question would be on a non-calculator exam. So yeah, you just need yeah, to, yeah. you need to practice the simplifying of CERDs and don't use your calculator to do that bit for you because otherwise, you know, that's not going to, you're not going to know how to do it yourself. So there are times where you have to just sort of tell them, to, yeah, you kind of you need to have that maturity, don't you? Where it's like, yeah, I know exactly. you've got one on your desk, but you need to be mature enough to know that this won't benefit you if you use it for this particular thing. But exactly. please do use it to check your answers. Um, it's interesting about the fractions because I have a there's a test that I when I give them their end of unit fractions test. Um, we did it this year, and it was mixed in. The fractions test had another topic on it where you had to use a calculator, and so it was a pain because we had to write a, t a fractions test where it was okay to have a calculator. Um, so that was quite challenging. So we did things like um, it was a fraction division question, but it said you must show your method in full. Do not use a calculator yeah, here, and that's okay. fine. So then we can check their workings. But there was one question on there, and I gave a one mark for it. And it was um, multiplying two mixed numbers, and I said you may use a calculator for this one, and it was something like. Um, one and a third multiplied by five and two fifths or something. Um, and as I expected, because this always happens, about half the class got it wrong. And even though it said use a calculator, mm. it's a one mark question. Mm. Um, and what they'd done wrong was they had, they don't, even though I had actually told this class, hadn't, I hadn't spent, I hadn't modelled it enough clearly. They don't know that shift and the fraction button gives them a mixed number. Um, so, you know, if you want to input five and two fifths and use it in a calculation, you do shift fraction button yeah. and it comes up with the three little boxes if yeah. they don't know that 
then what they do is they input like five and then they press the fraction button yeah. and then they do their two-fifths or whatever. And that is actually giving them <clears throat> a five multiplied by two-fifths. So you get totally the wrong answer out of it. And that's the sort of thing where it's such a basic thing, but so many students are not told about that. Like so many students no. are not told that if you want to input a mixed number, you need to do shift and the fraction button. Um, and and again, that's it's like... Probably, it's probably... It's probably because they haven't, again, it, fractions is treated as a, yeah. as a written yeah. topic, not a calculated topic. Yeah. And it's interesting. Yeah. I remember once I took, I took over a class who'd been taught Pythagoras. No, it was, they'd been taught um, area of a circle. And what I saw them doing was um, they weren't using the square button. They were just doing, say, oh. radius times radius. And it's not that they didn't know that it was radius squared. It's that they didn't know that they could use a square button. Yeah. And you think, that's like, come on, show them how to use a square button. Like, you know, mm. when, I mean, and, and this is again, really good use of visualizers to show, to model those techniques. So it's like, I'm modeling an area of a circle question and I will literally tell you what buttons you should press in your calculator. Um, oh, and actually, this is another example, like you said, of where you can get into your calculators to check answers. So, um, or, or to practice other bits of maths. So for example, if I was teaching area of a circle, then I might say, right, I want your, um, I want your answers in terms of pi. And then yes. I also want your answer in decimal form, rounded to two decimal places. Um, and so they have to know how to do 16 times pi on their calculator, which again needs modeling because yep. pi is ridiculously hidden in a shift button for no reason. Um, so you have to model that. Um, you have to model the pressing the SD button to turn it into a decimal. And then you then need them to round it, which is testing another math skill. And in fact, you could even do that in a lesson on rounding in year seven before nice. they've even done circles. Because you could say, right, we're going to do some rounding practice today, but we're going to do it by doing uh, 16 times pi, press the SD button and round that number. So you could actually use, like for rounding, calculators are amazing because you get them to do a whole load of calculator stuff around the answer. And the key topic in the le lesson is practice rounding, but at the same time, they're just practicing using their calculators and they're getting really used to using them. They've got the habit of using them. Lovely stuff. Right, final two points on this. So um, the first thing to say is, I have a bit of a theory on this. You know how, um, obviously, the GCSE used to be one calc and one non-calc paper, and yeah. now it's one calc and um, two calculator papers. So it must be a nightmare, as you were saying, for, for the GCSE examiners to come up with all these questions where, well, yeah, it, it's hard, isn't it, to, to write a calculate a question where kids are allowed to use a calculator but also they can't just kind of bang it straight into the calculator yeah. if, if that makes sense so i think that's a real challenge and i think you can do a fair bit of paper two and three in the maths gcse if you are a bit of a whiz on your calculator can you do some amazing stuff on the calculators these days right so yeah. obviously you can do all your tables of values stuff and um, for, for plotting straight line graphs you can do all your quadratic formula stuff. There's, when you get to A level, you can do even more stuff. So it, I think it's a real wow moment when you show the kids, you teach them how to do it, you know, using written methods. And then you say, right, now I'm going to show you how you can do this on your calculator. Now, as you say, you're not always going to have your calculator with you for doing this, but upskilling the kids to do some of the amazing functions that you can use on the calculator, I think is a really, really nice thing to do. And when you get slick on using your calculator, it's incredible, right? Some of the stuff. Yeah, it is. And, and the thing is, yeah, I'm not like, I'm not mass. I, I'm a bit old fashioned in a way. And, uh, you yeah, know, I, I like too. students who use calculators from early on, but I, I don't like it that, 
I don't like it that more expensive calculators give advantages. That really, yeah, really annoys me. So all of our students yeah. have the £10, you know, the classic Casio that, that kind of everyone yeah. has now. Um, but it frustrates me that they can have a graphical calculator and it can give them huge advantages. And that really, really annoys me. Like, I just yeah, I just feel I like it should be a level playing field. But you're right. But even I remember... the old, like, this old, class, this old classic here, the, the class whiz. Yeah, so know, that's, I call that the A-level class whiz, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even that... The stuff you can do oh. on that is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, stuff, absolutely. Right? But, yeah, like you say, a lot of students aren't taught these little things. And um, I think that the um, the good example is the fact, the prime factorisation. Because yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I had a student, I had a group of students a couple of years ago, and they were tops at year 11. They are absolutely flying through practice just before the GCSE. And they had a question, and it said something like, it was asking them if a number was prime. And oh, they had to know whether a number was prime. And it was a huge number. It was something like yeah. 700 and something or, I don't know, it was a really big number. Yeah. And they got stuck on this bit of the question. It was a big problem-solving question, but they got stuck because they didn't know if that was prime. Now, mm. they know how to check if a number's prime, but, you know, that's going to take forever. So so that's when I said, well, you do know the prime factorization button, don't you? <laughs> they didn't know. Yes. And, um, and I said, well, you can actually, you, you know, and then the thing is, I said, you, it shows the prime factorization, but then they need the understanding to know whether that shows it's prime. So, yes, you know, if they're, yes. if they're putting in a number and it's saying, so if, if you put in um, 16 and it comes up with two to the power of four, um, that's clearly not a prime number because we've got yeah. these factors of two. Um, whereas if we put in a, a number and you try and use that button and it's, it's just coming back with the same number, that's because it has no other factors to list. Um, so it's just, it's a really... Um, it's, it's a really powerful part of teaching prime factorization to get using that button and to and to look at what that tells you about numbers. Um, but I just again, loads of students will never have seen that. Um, and I don't think it offers a huge advantage knowing it in GCSE or A level, but it does help build understanding. Um, and it's just a really nice teaching tool for reasoning to do with primes. Absolutely. And my final point about calculators, Joe. This goes back to something we were saying earlier as well. You've got to. You'd be able to visually show the kids the buttons that you as a teacher are pressing on the calculator. Yeah. So whether you do this using an emulator mm -hmm. or whether you bang it under the visualizer, it's not enough. <laughs> I've done it, but I'm stood at the front yeah. tapping and like the kids have got different answers and then I've got to then try and figure out why they've got the different answers. Whereas a big old one on the board or stuck under the visualizer, it's the key, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting when they come out of a different answer on the calculator. Yeah. Um, and sometimes like uh, it's like, oh, you just had to do, uh, it might be a trick question and then they had to do a closed bracket or something or they, yeah. um, or uh, quite often it's where they um, haven't squared a negative properly. And yeah, there's common, there's common yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you can, yeah. once you get experience, you can kind of say, if they say to you, Miss, I got a different answer. If you know what the common mistakes are, then you can say, just look at what's on your screen. Because that's a good thing. These new calculators, the way, I still think it's amazing so that you can go back yeah. and see what they typed in. Me too. So Me I'll say, too. right, go, like, you know, go, use your cursor to go back, look at what you typed in. Did you put brackets around that negative two squared or whatever? Yeah. So it's that, it's that kind of thing where um, you get, it gets to the point where you can, um, as a teacher, you can predict where they're going to mess up on their calculator and you can preempt that. Um, but yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Like, they need to see it modelled properly. Um, and, you know, I the emulators are expensive or, you know, you can get them free if you buy. If you're going to buy yeah. calculators to sell or to give to your year group, you do get the emulators for free from Casio, or used to anyway. Um, but yeah, if you don't have that, then absolutely a calculator under a visualiser um, works wonders. Um, but yeah, they actually, Final. you know, I, I'll literally say to them, type this in now, 
check the number on your screen, tell me if that's not what you've got, and I'll come to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah so, we're, you know, we're very, I'm very specific and, like, take the time to make sure that I haven't just told them to put it in a calculator, but I've checked they've got the right thing on their screen when they've done that. Final word on calculator, Joe. We're old, me and you. Everybody, yes, everybody knows that. I'm still blown away. A big game changer in the world of calculators for me was when fractions looked like fractions. <laughs> when I was at school and stuff, it was the little L's, right? It was like, oh, you God, know, like got... two thirds was two yeah. L threes. Yeah. Right? And then whenever the calculators could do fractions, I was like, this yeah, is it. I agree. This is a game and changer. I still got students that we've got, you know, this was ridiculous. Our uniform supplier put calculators on the website so that when parents were buying uniform come in year six they were like oh there's a calculator on this website we'll buy that and it was like some helix rubbish like absolute (laughs) nonsense and um and so we have some students who would obviously we've now told the uniform supplier to get rid of that because that's not the calculator we want to use and then they join in year seven and we say right you have to have this casio but yeah any of my students that have got that rubbish calculator they when we get to fractions like they're they'll say to me what's this on my screen and i'll say i'm so sorry you've got that calculator but yeah yeah, i agree i am still um i'm still impressed with the i love the way that it can go that the that sd bus i don't know what people call it i call it the sd bus no i don't yeah i wish it had a proper name like why does it say sd on it it um but i i like i like the way that if your answer is a mixed number, you can convert between mixed number, improper fraction, and decimal ver- uh, form just by pressing it. And I just love that because, like yeah. you say, the calculators from our day, and it, it also the order used to be different, didn't it? So, like, I used to have to, yeah. with trig, I used to have to put in the angle and yeah. then press sign. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> they were bad, hey? Yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes I just press that SD button just for a bit of a laugh, just kind of flick in between. That makes me happy. And I should say, um, I don't think Helix are going to be sponsoring this <laughs> sorry, podcast anytime. Sorry, Helix. I don't even know if it is Helix. I think it is. Sorry. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> right, Joe, what's your fourth tip, please? Right, tip number four. Use visual aids, including props, images, and online tools to bring explanations alive. Oh, okay, right. Tell me more about this. Um, so again, I'm going to talk from a sort of maths perspective, but um, I think this probably applies in lots of other subjects as well, particularly um, science and, well, lots of subjects, geography, all sorts of things. Um, I, I remember going to see a science lesson a few years ago and the teacher was talking about a balloon and he was talking about filling a balloon with air and there was no balloon in the room. <laughs> I just thought he was talking about filling a balloon with air and he did not fill a balloon with air. And it's a very, yeah, yeah. very, very simple thing to do. Um, what I've done recently is I've taught a lot of volume and surface area. I just happen to teach it like similar topics to three year groups. And when I was teaching surface area, um, I found a shoebox at home. And I covered my shoebox in paper. This took about five minutes. I'm not someone who's going to sit at home and spend ages making props for my lessons. But I covered my shoebox in paper and I labelled the sides, the faces, sorry, A, B, C, D, E, F. And then when I came, is that right? F? Um, And then when I came in um, to school, I had my prop for surface area. Um, uh, Whenever I see a cylinder, Pringles tubes are great. I bring it into my classroom and I have a drawer full of cylinders. Um, and then when I'm talking about surface area of a cylinder, I'm sure lots of, I'm sure, I hope all maths teachers do this. I get a piece of paper and I wrap it around that cylinder and then I unwrap it and say, hey, look, what's this? Oh, it's a rectangle. And what's the length of that rectangle? You know, so I'm sure most teachers do that sort of thing. But basically, props are really, really powerful. And, um, and I use props alongside, um, alongside uh, animations and mm-hmm. alongside visuals. So I think these things all work together. Um, but I do think, um, you know, I'm always on the lookout for things I can use as props. Um, and sometimes they don't work. Like I remember when I was a 
trainee or an NQT, um, I decided I wanted to make props for 3D Pythagoras. And I used, I bought pipe cleaners online, like old school crafting <laughs> tools. And I made a cuboid out of pipe cleaners and then made that kind of space diagonal. And I was, oh, and it was just rubbish. I mean, it was flimsy rubbish yeah. that didn't work at all and no one had a clue what I was talking about. <laughs> um, and now um, I talk about the room we're in and I, I talk to the students about the classroom and I talk about the space diagonal and I go, I literally like, they think I'm crazy because I run across the room and I go and stand in the one corner and I talk about the other corner in the top end and I, I talk so and try and point to it, not tall enough. And I talk about the space diagonal. So now I'm kind of using the classroom as a prop. So, nice. you know, we, and, and once, I mean, I haven't done, <laughs> once um, when I was doing vectors for year 13 and you have to do, I can't even remember because I haven't taught it in so long, but I remember I once attached a bit of uh, wool <laughs> from one corner of the room to the other. Oh, wow to demonstrate whatever it was I was teaching, I can't even remember. But, um, so I don't, I don't do this very much, but uh, in terms of like things that take a bit of effort to do, because I haven't got time to do it. But there are some topics where without a prop, you're really, you're really not helping your students with, the, yes. with understanding a concept. Um, now, like I say, it doesn't have to be a prop though. It can be um, a, a meter ruler is a good example of a visual. Like how can you teach units without for the entire lesson waving a, a meter ruler around because I, I don't put that meter ruler down when I'm teaching units I've, in fact I pick up the meter ruler in many many lessons and then I like sort of I like pointing around with it but really I'm trying to say to them this is what a meter looks like and I say it so much surely they can never possibly forget what a meter ruler looks like because they think I'm a crazy person that's just always saying this is a meter don't forget um and then things like um uh lining people like if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about the concept of a median I don't, I don't necessarily get students out of their seats. I don't like doing that anymore. But it, used to, it might have been the time where I lined them up. But now I might say, right, I want you to visualise a line of students. And we're going to line them up in order of what they got on their last maths exam. And I said, I would <laughs> never do this to you because this is cruel. But let's imagine that I am a horrible teacher. And I've yeah. got the person with the lowest mark standing over here. And this person got... 43% on their maths exam and next to them I've got a person who got 45% so they did a bit better and I've got them all lined up and then right over by this wall over here this person got 100% this clever person is really pleased they're standing against this wall and everyone's thinking oh my god she's never going to do this is she um, <laughs> and then I so said I've got them all picturing this line of students and then I've said right so what's the median score let's find the student standing in the middle of that line and let's picture that student and they're standing in the middle and they're looking they've got the same amount of people over here and they've got the same amount of people over here and that student's score is the median so this is an example of using, it's not even a visual because I haven't got the students up there, but it's a, it's a visualization. Um, so, so that's one part of it, but I, I also mentioned um, online tools. Um, mm. And it's really, what's really interesting, Craig, is that when I did my PGCE, I reckon like the only thing they taught me on my PGCE was that I should learn to be a GeoGebra expert. Like this was the one thing they said a million <laughs> times. They were like, it, and at the time it was geometry, sketchpad and, and GeoGebra. Yeah. And obviously now we've got stuff like um, Desmos and we have, um, well, I suppose there's Autograph and uh, what else is there? There's loads of stuff. There's loads of cool tools you can use to, um, mm. to do um, to, like dynamic um, software that you yeah. can use to, to show geometry. Um, and I have never, I mean, I know you're a bit of an expert on these things, sort of Autograph and things like that, but I've never learned how to build things on that. And I don't yeah, think it matters because you can just Google it and someone else has done it for you. So yes. that I will Google um, surface area of a cylinder, GeoGebra, and I find that some lovely person has made a GeoGebra that where I can move a little slider along and it unwraps yes. that on the board for me. Yes. So I would use that as well as a physical prop. Um, and I think that a lot of teachers don't know that you can Google GeoGebra and other people have made 
all these amazing things. Like even last week I was teaching congruent triangles and it didn't occur to me that if you Google GeoGebra congruent triangles, there's some really cool stuff you can use. Yeah. Um, and basically you can use dynamic software to explain mass concepts without having to know how to use dynamic software because lovely people have all put it online for us. So yes, right. I'm talking There's, about dynamic you, software, I'm talking about actual props, and I'm talking about visuals, um, basically anything to help our students get over and remember and understand the concepts we're trying to explain. I love it. Right, a few things about this. So I couldn't agree, couldn't agree more with you. And GeoGebra has come on leaps and bounds, yeah. right? The things that people can do on that just absolutely blows my mind. I'm exactly the same. I'm a Google GeoGebra surface or whatever, whatever it is, I do the same. Um, so a couple of things there. One thing that's great about all visuals, but particularly I think this works well with the online stuff more, is you can change something and observe the effect it has. You're not fixed with this like hand-drawn diagram, this static thing on the board. But one thing I think there's a danger of, and I don't know if you agree here, so obviously a lot of the GeoGebra stuff has these sliders yeah. and stuff and things changing everywhere. I think there's a real danger as teachers we can just kind of just whiz things from left to right and things magic things happen on the board and it's just it's almost like watching a movie for the kids whereas if you say right what i'm going to do now is i'm going to increase the length of this dimension what impact do you predict that's going to have think think about it yourself maybe put it on a mini whiteboard or something and now i'm going to do it that way they're a bit more engaged in it mm -hmm. it has meaning to them they then have an opportunity to explain it discuss whereas whenever there's loads of sliders and it's the same same on desmos when you when you do like y equals mx plus c and then you just kind of increase the value of m things are just whizzing around without that time for the kids to to just have a think what do i think is going to happen now this has actually happened do i understand why so yeah I, i've been guilty of, of that in the past anything you want to say about that before i tell you yeah well you've made me think of a good example on masspad um, and these is they're probably geogebra's got some of these as well masspad has a great animation of um exterior angles in a polygon and how if you shrink that polygon down they all sum to 360 um and i think um yeah I, i've i've definitely there's been times where i've just like let's look at the five sides let's look at six sides let's look at seven sides oh look yeah. it keeps adding up to 360 and it's yeah, yeah like you say it's yeah, a bit yeah. too quick so thinking about it now based on what you said i probably would be better to say right so we're going to start with this five, uh, pentagon and let's let's uh, watch what happens when i shrink it down and look all those angles sum to 360 what shall I do next? Miss, can you try six sides? What do you think might happen? So yeah, you're right. I think I've been guilty of going too quickly on those things and getting them to either make a prediction or keep a record of what they've seen. So, you know, like yes. um, five sides, three, uh, 360, and then like, you know, they're actually keeping a record as you do the demonstration. It's a good idea, yeah. Yeah, it's good. And particularly, as you say there, getting the kids to say, saying to the kids, what do you want me to do next? What do you want me to try next? That's always a lovely thing. Okay, so Joe wants me to try this. What do we all think is going to happen here? Write it down, have a thing. Yeah, really nice. And the final thing I want to say is <laughs> dodgy props. It was interesting you mentioned the pipe cleaners. Like, <laughs> I'm crap at anything, creating anything like that. But I always remember um, when Danny Quinn came on my Mr. Bart Maths podcast years and years ago, I think it might have been when I asked her what um, her favorite failure was. And she described, and I don't know if you've done this lesson, I've tried this and it's a disaster. It's when you're teaching surface area of a sphere. Um, and Danny described oh, yeah. bringing in an bringing the in orange. an orange. <laughs> no, I've yeah. never done that. 
and peeling it because of course i mean I, what's the surface area of, i always forget whether it's, uh, the four it's four piles one or four pile squared yeah four pile squared yeah yeah, yeah. so the, the the brilliant idea is of course you peel this orange yeah. and it's going to fit brilliantly into four circles <laughs> all of which and it never no. ever does so you end up kind of dis you, you kind of get in the kid's mind that this thing doesn't work before they even see what the thing is so yeah i'm all for the props but it's it's got to be one that you're pretty sure is going to convey the idea yeah it's interesting because surface sphere i've never done that one but i used to have a giant tennis ball which i lost at one school i have no idea what happened to it but i bought this you know we we shouldn't be spending money on these things for a start so like i should not have bought a giant tennis ball just to show surface area sphere if you look at the markings on a tennis ball you know how it's got that kind of it's like a it's like two circles that are joined together wrapped around each other like a a tennis ball is the one that shows that you could don't see it on other types of ball um and that and then basically if you unwrap those parts you get these four circles um, so I always thought that was oh, quite a nice, nice way of showing it. Although, again, it's still not ideal because it's like a circle with a bit in the middle and another circle, and they kind right. of blur together in the middle, but actually it is equivalent to four four circles. But, again, it, it's not the perfect thing. But, yeah, so I think you're right. There are some things, particularly to do with... Well, a sphere is a really good example. of you If you're going to prove or if you're going to show them the derivation of the surface area or volume of a sphere, I believe you need to use calculus to do that. I might be wrong. I believe for mm, particularly... I think yeah, so. I think I think you need to, to do that um, with much more advanced maths. And it is quite frustrating. There are some things that we can't actually um, explain the why because the students haven't done um, advanced enough maths. So that's probably one of these ones where you can just, you can just turn the formula and it's fine. And you don't need to get or the Or like out. show them a, a, like a, an online version that you know works. Like, you know, you can imagine a fancy GeoGebra one that, yeah. that demonstrates. Oh, something. yeah. And a good example of that is with the um, the ones, you know, <laughs> I now show for a, third, the cylind- a cone being a third of a cylinder. I've just got a, yeah. a, a couple of demonstrations. Oh, I've got a picture yeah. that shows it and I've got a demonstration that shows it. And I am certainly not, I mean, I never did this, but I always intended to somehow get hold of a cone and a cylinder that had exactly the same height and radius and fill one with either water or sand and pour it in. Now, I've never done that, but I remember I used to want to do it. I just couldn't get hold of the right equipment. Um, but yeah, I think that's fine done with a um, with an animation. I don't think we need to take the water in the classroom necessarily. Some people might do it really well, but I don't think we need to kill ourselves trying to do these things. Right, Joe Morgan, what is your fifth and final tip? Right, tip number five. Don't forget the respond part of responsive teaching. Oh, catchy. That's the kind of clickbait headline I'm looking for there. That's good. Right, go on, tell me about this. Right, well, what used to be called assessment for learning and now more commonly called responsive teaching, it comes up a lot in lesson observations. So quite mm. often when you're observed, or if I go and observe someone, one of the things that often people are writing on these lesson observation forms is, um, could be more AFL, how are you assessing what the students know? So, But when we're talking about that, we're often talking about how the assessment takes place. Yes. So we might be talking about, are you using mini whiteboards? Are you using questioning effectively? Are you using, I don't know, exit tickets or diagnostic questions? You know, if they've got iPads, you get them to do some diagnostic questions at the end before they leave. Um, or are you circulating and looking over their shoulders? So there's all these different techniques for assessing. But I tend to find that when people are giving feedback on their um, on their lessons, the focus is on, did you do the assessment rather than yes. how did you respond to the assessment that you did? And that's the hard bit. And that's the bit that actually I think a lot of people um, aren't, 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 don't know how to do. So when you see them get something wrong, how do you then on the fly adapt your lesson or adapt your next lesson to respond to it? Um, and 
I just, I, I don't think it's happening. I don't think it's people who are adapting their lessons as, as they should do for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's you have to be able to think on your feet and think very quickly. Um, if you're gonna, if you see a big misconception in a lesson, or you see that you've explained something and no one's got a clue what you're talking about, you have to think very quickly to think. You know, is there a, what's the other way I can explain it? What, what different examples can I use? Um, how should I, you know, how should I respond to the fact that half the class have got it and half the class have no idea? So that's that's sort of in the lesson. But the other thing is, there's this kind of fashion at the moment for, we're all talking about how, why are we all built writing our own lessons? Why aren't we using centrally planned lessons? And there's like quite a thing at the moment. And I've heard, um, I went to a talk recently with the um, uh, NECTM where they were saying, you know, what, how, how, how silly that all these teachers plan their own lessons on their own. What a terrible use of time. And there are parts of that argument I strongly agree with. But also, mm. if we're going to use a centrally planned bank of lessons where a whole unit of uh, teaching has been planned in advance, lesson by lesson, um, that doesn't really give us the opportunity to respond to our students. Um, yes. And I, I tweeted about this recently, about how I did a lesson on scattergraphs with Year 8. And I've got a pretty, I've got um, a pretty smart class of year eights. They're really good. Um, they, they, um, I can rely on them to, to be good at whatever I give them. Yeah, they're a good class. Um, and they had done scattergraphs in science. Um, and I knew they'd done scattergraphs in science because I had asked them in advance. And also I had checked the, with the science teachers. And yet when I, so I, because I was short on time, because maths teachers are always short on time, like I had, I was rushing topics because I spent a long time going to depth on one topic and it left me very little time for scattergraphs. I thought I'm going to do it in two lessons. I'm going to do one correlation and I'll do one line of best fit because I've done it before. And of course what happened was in that very first lesson, they got the correlation thing, no problem. And then I gave them a task well, I wasn't really testing the knowledge of correlation because the task said plot a scattergraph and then write down what the correlation is. So really mm. the task was testing whether they can plot a scattergraph primarily and they just couldn't. Like their scales were out of control, yeah. crazy, awful, awful stuff. Like they had no clue how to draw a graph, uh, an axis. And the thing is that I hadn't taught them that, I hadn't modelled it. So immediately I thought, well, that was that that was a that's my mistake. I should never, I should have assessed up front or I should have, yeah. I should have checked before I got started, whether they could do this particular skill, because basically I've just made a mess of this. So what I did was, was I scrapped my next lesson plan, which I was going to do line of best fit. I hadn't planned it yet though, because I don't plan lessons a long way in advance, because I know that that's a silly thing to do. So that's fine, I hadn't planned it. So I then went um, that evening and I planned the next day's lesson where I got, I taught them about scale and we looked at some scales with mistakes and we talked about why those scales were wrong and we talked about how to draw axes and we practiced that and then by the end of that lesson they were doing axes and scatter graphs much better so i fixed the problem um because i was responsive to what i saw in the lesson now if i was teaching a very regimented pre-planned series of lessons mm. then i wouldn't have been able to do that unless of course i had um um i i was you kind of allowed i guess in some schools they might say yes we have these lessons that you have to use but you are allowed to adapt and veer off them if you want to so i suppose that would have been all right but you know i think i feel like i have to defend myself in the school um, as a sometimes as a member of a leadership team, I get uh, by the other members of leadership team. I get told off for why you plan why you plan your lessons in the evening, um, and I or why you plan your lessons in the afternoon. You've got other things that are more important to do. Um, why aren't you just using other people's lessons? Why aren't you sharing lessons in the department? Um, now we do share stuff. You know, I save my stuff in the shared area. Other people are welcome to use it. Um, but the reason I'm planning my lessons the night before is because we have maths uh, four days a week 
Um, so I'm not like other subjects where I have a nice three-day gap between lessons. Um, and I have to respond to what I saw that day. Like, I can't, you can't just ignore what you saw in, in today's lesson and just carry on regardless. You have to respond to it. Um, so, yeah. And there's, I mean, there, there are other examples where you don't have to, it's not about changing the next lesson. So, for example, this week I was doing a lesson on transformations with year 10. And they were doing some practice on invariance. The whole lesson was about invariance. And then there was one question they got to on negative, which they had to do a negative enlargement and write about which points were invariant. And like I had one hand went up. First person that got to that question, I can't remember how to do a negative enlargement. They did it in year nine. And then another hand went up. And by the time the third hand went up, I stopped them all. And I said, I'm just going to model a negative enlargement question because I can see that everyone's forgotten how to do this. Now, I don't like to interrupt people when they're working on a task, but you know that required me to adapt my lesson during the lesson because I was responding to what I saw. Um, so basically, there's a couple of things here. One, I do see massively the advantages of off-the-shelf uh, units of lessons that are planned in advance. I definitely see the advantages to teachers that need support and to, um, to, to say to for efficiency, but we have to make sure that if we're doing that, that we are still allowing our teachers to be responsive to what they see in front of them and adapt those lessons massively if they need to, um, because being responsive is the right thing for our students. High quality lessons are important for our students, but being responsive is part of that high quality teaching and you lose the being responsive if you've planned the whole thing in advance. Um, and then the other part of that is, um, learning techniques to be responsive in the lesson and knowing when it's the right time to say that I've got this plan and I was hoping to get to this point in this hour but actually halfway through I've realised that I'm going to have to scrap the second half of the lesson and divert because of what I'm seeing in front of me. I think teachers have got really good at the assessment part of responsive teaching but we need to do more work on the responsive part of responsive teaching. Lovely that Joe. right just a few things about this. I think um there are kind of three kind of times in a lesson where I would do kind of what I call kind of formal formative assessment. And I think the first one's probably the key, that prereq knowledge check. Yeah. If you, if I spoke about with Adam Boxer about this. If you get that bit right, you, you just save yourself a load of potential hassle going forward. And I think if any, if teachers are going to be responsive anywhere, that's possibly the easiest part to be responsive because you ask this question, the prereq knowledge isn't there, so you don't really have a choice. You have to stop and teach that that prerequisite knowledge. I think it gets a bit more difficult when you start doing formative assessment midway through a lesson, when perhaps the kids are practicing a new concept that you've taught them. It's quite tempting just to kind of let them kind of crack on with it and keep practicing, but then if you, if you stop them there and just do a bit of a, a sense check of where all the class are, either with diagnostic questions or mini whiteboards or whatever it's then sometimes quite difficult to respond there because sometimes it's all right the rest of you crack on with this whereas the ones who are struggling just watch me at the board or kind of come around in a small group but it's so it's so important yeah. to do and then that final part as you say whether it's an exit ticket or a final question at the end that's quite nice because then as you say you then have a bit of time before the next lesson to think and it might not be scrapping the whole lesson it might be saying right for the first 10 minutes I'm just going to need to go back over this and, and so on and so forth. Um, second thing, was, I, I've definitely been there with this. Certainly when I was much less experienced, your lesson plan, it's almost like it's set in stone. So you're going to, I'm going to use this slide, then I'm going to use this slide and so on and so forth. I'd never put the two and two together though, Joe, to start thinking about the pre-prepared resources, which are really high quality, 
may actually cause teachers to be less responsive. It's a really interesting thing that and it goes back to that story I was talking about previously where this guy was clicking through the PowerPoints. There was no way he was going to do anything apart from click next slide. There was no way he was going to be able to respond because then what what's he going to do? He's going to have to close his PowerPoint down, get up on the other. It just wasn't going to happen. So that's really interesting that I'm a big proponent of these shared resources for workload and also kind of lesson sequencing reasons. But yeah, I'd never put two and two together. That's really nice, that Joe. I, li I like that. And my final thing, and I'm obviously ridiculously biased, but I think diagnostic questions are quite good for responsive teaching for two reasons. So, well, three reasons. So one, they're very quick to kind of ask and get the whole kids. You get a response off all the kids, whether it's A, B, C, D cards or mini wipers or whatever. Two, if the kids get it wrong, you have a sense of why they're getting it wrong because of their choice of wrong answer. So each wrong answer will give you an insight into the specific nature of their misunderstanding. So you can then, then you've got, if you've looked at the question in advance and you think, okay, loads of my kids are getting, are going for A, A's wrong and I know why because I've looked at the question before, you're then probably in a better position to have a good explanation or a demonstration or whatever. But finally, I think the most challenging thing about responding in responsive teaching, as you've said, is, is, is what, how you actually respond. If you've got half your kids who've, who know what they're doing and half your kids who don't, that's potentially difficult. But with diagnostic questions, what I tend to do is the kids who don't know what they're doing, I've got an insight as to why, so I can support them. But the kids who do know what they're doing, I can simply say something like, or one of my favorite things to say to the kids is, for a diagnostic question, can you write me three more diag three more questions which would make each of the wrong answers right? So I can give this like, okay, we, we know D's the right answer to this question. Whilst I'm helping out the rest of the class, can you write me a question as similar to the one that you that we've just seen here? So just change one thing, but make A the right answer. Then change one thing and make B the right answer. Fantastic. And that means that I don't have to give out another worksheet, another activity or anything like that. They can be busy in a useful way whilst I can help the other kids out. Because to take your right at the point you made right at the start, the reason I think teachers struggle with the responsive bit of responsive teaching is that's that is the hard bit. Yeah. That's the hard bit. And it's 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 a lot easier when all the kids either know it or all the kids don't know it. But when you have this split, it's quite difficult to respond. So that's some of the kind of things that that I would do. Did you have any thoughts if you get that position, Joe, where you have a bit of a split in the class of knowledge? It's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, you're right, because you've got this thing where if the whole class is uses at something, then you either change that lesson or you change the next lesson yeah. and you just yeah. have to teach that thing they all can't do. But yeah, it's it, it, and if it's one or two students, then that's easier because you can just go yeah. to them directly. But you're right, if you've got half the class getting it and half the class not, that is, that is really challenging. So like you say, you need to find something... Um, find something that's going to get the ones who get it doing some reasoning while you're still um, yeah. explaining or adapting your explanation for the ones who don't get it. Because that's the thing, isn't it? It's about adapting your explanation. Like if you've shown them, like if you've shown them a way of doing it, if you've, if you've modeled a number of examples and they're still not getting it, you need to model them differently or you need to find a different explanation or you need to find a, um, a different method. Um, and, yeah. and so it takes, a, it takes quite a lot of experience and expertise to get it right. Um, it's definitely the, definitely the hardest bit of teaching. Um, Absolutely. And, um, and it's interesting, isn't it, because you think about in other subjects and how you, know, you could have where they want students to write a paragraph um, and, and you know, like they're going around seeing that some students are writing these amazing paragraphs and some students are just writing a load of nonsense. Um, and I can imagine it's it's just as hard there to sort of decide, you know, 
without if there's too many students to help individually then what are you going to do then and you really need to minimize the amount of times you stop a class and interrupt them particularly for those who are getting on with it like it's really hard if there's some who are just happily working away to say right everyone i can see some of you aren't getting this so well pens down and all eyes back on me because that's really frustrating for those who are fine with it um so yeah i i don't have all the answers on the best way of doing it but i do know that I'm really worry about um, I really worry about these uh, this big trend at the moment for uh, collaboration is a really good thing and we should be collaborating mm. and we should be being efficient but these off the shelf lessons they have to be they have to be used with caution and they it has yeah. to be really strongly emphasised that if you're using a essentially or say one teaching department's going to plan all the angles lessons I, I can see the advantages but it also means that if you're delivering um, a series of lessons that someone else has taught. Um, you need to have the confidence to not use that lesson halfway through the lesson if um, if your class, depending on what your class say, because otherwise all the assessment for learning is just a waste of time. If you're just, you know, if you're getting them to do stuff on many whiteboards or you're circulating or you're questioning um, and and then you're saying, oh, they haven't quite got this, but I need to click on to the next slide, then they might as well not have done it. Um, so yeah, I do think it's really, really tough. Um, I'll tell you one more example. I use my, um, so my year nines this year, they've done, they've got a, a, a cast of year nines who struggle with maths and they did a, a grid method last year for expanding double brackets. And early this year, I gave them a end of unit test on some topic and I included some retrieval questions in that. And I could see that uh, three quarters of the class got the double bracket expansion wrong. They've been taught the grid method last year. They made all the common misconceptions you get with that method, um, particularly that filling in the last box with by adding the numbers like that's really really common um so then i responsive the responsive teaching for me there from seeing that one test question that they all got wrong was uh, a couple of months later when i did have the opportunity to do some algebra because algebra came up on the scheme of work um i tried showing them a different method so i said look you all know how you all taught how to do the grid method i know that some of you have not remembered how to do the grid method i'm going to show you a different way of doing it and i used the distributive method so um which was modeled very well by chris bolton at a recent mass conference and i used his series of um examples to model it and 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 it worked really well and at the end of that series of lessons i did on that i said right so in year eight you were taught the grid method for expanding brackets i've taught you a different method uh, which basically just requires expertise in single brackets to be successful in, which was really good for them because they had the expertise in single brackets. And I said, and I'll let you decide going forward which method you're going to use for this topic. Um, but yeah, I if I hadn't um, if I hadn't spotted that a lot of the class had um, not coped well with the method they've been taught in year eight, um, then I wouldn't have adapted my lessons um, for year nine. So I do think this responsive teaching thing, it can be short term, like in the lesson, mm. or it can be kind of... Um, one lesson to the other, or it can even be like over a long period of time, um, looking at uh, how they did in end of year assessment or how they do in an end of unit test, and then thinking about how you're gonna do things differently next time. So there's a whole load of responsive teaching that we all need to be thinking about. And I think it's a massively important part of what we do. And um, and yeah, I think sometimes, like I say, in lesson observations, the emphasis is on how are you assessing, not how are you responding. So yeah, we do need to, uh, I think uh, as a profession, we need to get better at thinking about uh, the best ways to respond. Fantastic. Joe Morgan, over to you now. What are you going to plug? Have you got anything you want listeners to check out here? What are we plugging? (laughs) Uh, Well, I wrote a book a couple of years ago and uh, it's not selling as much as it used to, so I could do a little... (laughs) 
uh, did you get your royalties through methods. the other day? I got my royalties through the other day. Yeah, no, yeah, I got my royalties yesterday. I got my royalties. Yeah. I thought that was absolutely much too. easier. Me too. Um, There's yeah. no new car being bought here. I can tell you that much. <laughs> I, the only other thing that I've got coming up is I'm speaking at the MA conference in the Easter holidays, and I'm doing the keynote on the first day. People can attend online for a couple of days um, and see my keynote, um, and it's actually super cheap. But also, there's a third day which is in-person in Strapped-Upon-Avon, um, and that's really exciting because, you know, these in-person conferences coming back is, is good times, isn't it? Where uh, we can actually sit in a room full of maths teachers um, is really nice. So, yes, um, there's, there's all sorts of stuff coming up. Um, but, yeah, I don't, have, I don't have any new websites to plug, but I hear that you do. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. One day, Joe. Well, Joe Morgan, as ever, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Craig.